Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 12 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Servants of Satan Exposed, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, in this chapter, Paul is very, very strong with the Corinthians about the danger of some false teachers he calls the super apostles. And he feels very much a fatherly, protective love for them. Uh, so that he can warn them about the danger of listening to these false teachers. So in a larger sense, for us as 21st century readers of 2 Corinthians, we're warned that there are going to be false teachers in our generation, and we need to be very aware of how they behave and their doctrine and not put up with it, uh, but expose it. So we'll talk about that today. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 through 15 for our listeners today. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough." Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Andy, what's the foolishness Paul refers to in verse 1? And why do you think Paul decides to foolishly boast about his credentials in this chapter? Well, I think the foolishness is the boasting. It's just not really our native language. Um, you know, we we know that and Paul himself wrote, well, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we will know, as he says plainly to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? And and if you if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? 
So boasting is about as far from the normal Christian demeanor as could uh, could be. We're going to spend eternity in heaven giving glory to God for whatever he did in and through our lives, knowing that every good thing that could ever be said about our lives came by the grace of God. Paul mm-hmm. knows that better than we do. And yet he feels it necessary to take on this demeanor, this approach, in order to, to expose and to crush the influence of these super apostles. It seems central to their approach was an arrogant boasting, uh, a presenting of themselves and of their resumes and their credentials, and also a demeaning of Paul. And so there's pressure on Paul here to address it in some way, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he feels led that this is the best way to address it with some, seems to me, sarcastic boasting, uh, which he knows is off the path of what Christians usually do. And he's going to, when he comes out of it finally in chapter 12, Mm. he said, you know, look, I didn't want to do it, but you drove me to it. Mm. I had no choice. So I think the foolishness here is generally boasting, boasting about himself and his ministry. What insight does verse two give to Paul's motives for his ministry in Corinth? And how does this give us insight into how ministers should think about their own congregations? I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. So he's got a feeling of jealousy over them. And the language he uses here is is really fascinating and powerful. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Hmm. But I'm afraid that uh, you have been deceived, that you are off of your purity, you're off of your pure devotion. And so I'm not able to finish the task that I wanted to of getting you ready for your wedding day. So as I ponder the the role he's taking here, it seems very much like the father of an unmarried daughter, um, of a virgin daughter, let's say. And his job as, as the father of a daughter is to get her uh, to the altar, get her to the to her wedding day pure and undefiled, and, and many other things, of course. But that's part of the job. I've got three daughters myself, and I, I feel that that's part of my job description is to protect her purity and to teach her and train her and protect her, put a wall around her to some degree. And uh, so Paul's using this kind of language. I had desired to finish my task mm. of ministering to you, so that when you are done. You are ready for your wedding, uh, and the true bridegroom is Christ. And so he's jealous over her affections, and it goes into her heart. So you could imagine the unmarried daughter toward the end of her time living in her father's home in this biblical kind of concept here, um, staying late out at night, um, starting to behave ways that, that are off, and you know, he's saying, look, you are drifting. You are being enticed away from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So putting it simply, he is zealous for the Corinthian church, the local church that he planted, that they would continue to love Christ in the pure doctrinal way of the gospel he preached. Instead, they're being enticed to a false gospel by some false teachers. So if that's Paul's motive, what present threat does Paul seem to see concerning the spiritual health of the Corinthian church, and how are the super apostles deceiving and threatening the spiritual purity of that church? 
Well, he's going to call them servants of Satan, and he's going to clearly say in this section that we're studying that they are being enticed by a false gospel. Now, I don't really know the elements of that false gospel. You know it clearly in Galatians. It's uh, Jewish legalism. Uh, in Colossians, it's uh, kind of a philosophical, Greek philosophical system um, uh, with uh, that leads to harsh treatment of the body and a trust in human philosophies and maybe worship of angels and some other things. That's Colossians. Then in Peter, it seems to be license. Um, you know, Second Peter two, the false teachers there are saying, now that you're Christians, you can live any way you want. Um, so it's all different kinds of things. So we don't know exactly what the false gospel is here, but he's trying to protect them to keep them focused on the true gospel of Christ crucified, resurrected, of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the holy life that flows from that. That's what he's trying to protect. Now, you also asked earlier in the second part of your question, what should we do about this? How should we um, you know, apply this in our day? And I think it's to, to understand that Satan um, is still alive and wicked and active, and he is going to be assaulting every local church all over the world with false doctrine, and we need to be ready for it and aware of it. What analogy does Paul use in verse 3, and how does that analogy help us to see the gravity of being taken in by false teachers? Okay, so he's he's likening um, what's happening in Corinth to what happened with Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, she was innocent. Um, the serpent came. She listened to the lie. She was deceived, and she went off and sinned. And he's saying the same thing. You're, you're being enticed. You're being led astray from, he says, your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They're being enticed in that direction. By the way, I mentioned something right before we started uh, recording this podcast, and, and I know we're going to move on, so I don't want to go too far from verse 2. Uh, without telling you that it's had a big impact on my marriage um, and my thinking of my marriage. And uh, I think it's it's a great way to think about uh, by Christian husbands thinking about their, their finite time mm. in a married state with their Christian wives. And the idea here in Ephesians 5 is that we are to wash our wives with water through the word in order to present her to Christ blameless for that great wedding day. Uh, Paul uses a similar language here of saying, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ that I might present you mm -hmm. as a pure virgin to him. So uh, part of the task then of a Christian husband toward his Christian wife is when all is said and done to present her ready for judgment day, ready for heaven. And he does that by prayer and the ministry of the word and by the way he treats her. Um, and it's an amazing image. And oddly, we husbands, while we're doing that, are members ourselves of the bride of Christ. So, you know, that's Ephesians 5, but we are getting ourselves ready for the same thing. But it's a role that we play. I just, I've thought about 2 Corinthians 11 too in terms of my own marriage. I need to get Christy ready for her true eternal marriage. And that's uh, Christ in heaven. Yeah, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> well, as we're talking about uh, verse 3, you mm -hmm. talked about the analogy that he uses of yeah. uh, Eve being deceived here. And we we're mm -hmm. just talking about the gravity of yeah, yeah. Uh, that deception coming in, of being taken in by false teachers. Sure, and he uses uh, the language here in my translation. I don't know what yours has, Wes, in verse 3, but the serpent's cunning. Yeah. Um, and that leads the mind astray. Yeah. So there's schemes. He mentioned schemes other places. So the false doctrine comes in looking good, um, mm -hmm. but there's something corrupt in it, and you've got to be able to discern it. That's where elders come in, people who are skilled in the word. They can say, you know, this sounds right, but it isn't. 
Uh, yeah, it's got some aspects that show maybe some compassion or some truth or some some aspects that we could embrace, but there's a poison pill in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's the idea here is we need to be alert and test and evaluate all of the doctrinal influences on the members of our congregation. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that it's not 100% clear what exactly this false teaching is that's mm -hmm. coming in. But does verse four help us get yeah. maybe a clearer insight into what kind of doctrine these super apostles were preaching? And what does he mean by the fact that the Corinthian church put up with mm -hmm. uh, false teaching readily enough? Yeah, Wes, I do think verse four gives you an insight into what the super apostles were teaching. You know, if someone comes and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach. So they've mm. changed some aspect of um, Christ. False doctrine always does something with Christology. There's mm. something off about what they say about Jesus. And then uh, a different spirit from the one you receive. That in my translation, the spirit is uh, a lowercase s, um, but it could be um, you know, the spirit that, that you received, if it's not the Holy Spirit, should be a lowercase s. It mm -hmm. could be a demonic influence, mm. but it's not the Holy Spirit of God. And then um, uh, he mentions a different gospel. And so that's language straight from Galatians 1. Now, again, I don't know that it was Jewish legalism like in Galatians, but it's just a different gospel. It's a different set of teachings by which the question is answered, what must I do to be saved? How does a sinner like me get right before God? Mm. A different answer to that question mm. could be works, could be um, faith alone apart from works, you know, like uh, the licensed teachers where once you believe in Jesus, you can live any way you want. And so that would usually mean sexual immorality, uh, all kinds of worldliness or extreme asceticism and legalism like in Galatians and Colossians where you got to follow all these rules and regulations. Both of those are different gospels. So I would say fundamentally the idea is a, a perverted, strange teaching about Jesus, mm. uh, not the gift of the Holy Spirit, the true Holy Spirit of God, and then a different answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? That seems to be what was going on. And the way verse 4 ends, it really is a severe rebuke, it seems to them, because he's basically saying you just accept it, right? This this teaching is coming in yeah. and you're just ready to kind of take mm -hmm. this in. So it seems like there's then a responsibility that he's laying on them and I think right. uh, implicitly on every local church concerning the doctrine they're receiving. What is that and why is it so important to be uh, a part of a healthy local church and together evaluate the teaching that's coming in? Yeah, I mean, this is some of the strongest evidence uh, for, for us as Baptists even of congregationalism again and again and again in these New Testament epistles. The local churches are responsible for the teaching they put up with. They're mm. responsible for, for their pastors and for what they teach. So they're supposed to follow the leadership of the pastors. That's obviously with a caveat, as long as they're teaching and preaching the true gospel. Mm. If they're not, it's the congregation's job to get rid of them. And so here the language is you put up with this easily enough. Now, going back to that, that rather uncomfortable imagery, but we didn't make it up. It's really coming from the text of a, of a pure virgin who is being gotten ready for her wedding day. This, this woman, the Corinthian church, is weak-willed, mm -hmm. um, listening to tales and easily kind of getting away from safety and going off with a guy kind of thing. Hmm. And it's like, where's your, where's your resistance don't you have any commitment here to holiness, any commitment to purity? And so along come these people, you know, as soon as I leave town, the next guys come in and they're teaching something different. And you're like, oh, you're fine with it. And you're putting up with it. And he's really finding fault with them for putting up with 
hear the false doctrine, and then in the section immediately or at the beginning of the next section we're going to look at, uh, abuse. They're abusive. These super apostles push themselves forward stridently and slap them in the face, treat them harshly, and you're putting up with it. You shouldn't put up with that. Get rid of these people. So yeah, congregationalism, the concept that the Corinthians are responsible for the fact that these guys are still hanging around in a position of honor and access to your minds and regular teaching ministry, you should have gotten rid of these mm. people. Get them out of here. Now, we've been using the phrase super apostle, but verse five is one mm. of two places in this letter that yeah. Paul actually uses that phrase. What does that phrase super apostle mean as we see it here in verse five? Well, again, I think it's it's a title that Paul is using, like a phrase that's coined. Either it was coined by the super apostles or it sums up their attitude, and and it's being used by Paul here in a pejorative, sarcastic sort of way, where it's like, yeah, apparently they're better than us. So I guess we would call them super apostles. See, it's not enough that to be an apostle. I've told you, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But these guys come along, and they're the new and improved version. They are the super apostles. So either they were saying it or Paul's using it sarcastically. Mm -hmm. But they're saying we're better than Paul. And, and there's a lot – I think there's an implied denigration of Paul here. He's not impressive in his, in his person, in his demeanor, in his speaking. His letters are powerful, but then he comes, and he's pretty wimpy. He's not much to look at. Um, you know, he says here, I may not be a trained speaker, but I, I do have some knowledge. Um, you know, I am trained in knowledge. It's like – like, look, um, this polished rhetoric, all of this sort of stuff, it's all show. Hmm. Um, but they're saying they're better than us. And he's going to expose them in, the in this chapter and on into the next with some credentials they just don't have. But his credentials go in a whole different direction. They're not hmm. worldly success credentials. They're saying – he's going to say basically, I have been crushed and destroyed by the world for preaching this gospel more than anyone else on earth. They can't even come close to my level of suffering for Christ. Mm -hmm. He goes a whole different direction. I think they were success-oriented, like almost prosperity gospel people that wanted to look good and be attractive to the neighbors and, and successful and welcomed by Greek philosophers and, and just looking good on the outside. So that's how I make uh, up who these super apostles are. I think there's a lot of arrogance, a lot of pride and boasting. Also in the last section, it seems they come into to another man's territory and take over. So they, they boast in fields that they didn't work. They came and, and built on a foundation that Paul had laid, but they weren't careful how they were building, 1 Corinthians 3. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things here about this these uh, super apostles. You alluded to this a moment ago. Paul then, kind of in contrast almost it seems, speaks about some of his deficiencies in public speaking, but mm -hmm. highlights that he's not that way in knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he says, you know, we've made this – plain to you. Mm -hmm. uh, why does he mention that here? And how has he demonstrated the knowledge he speaks of here and in his other letters? Well, it really goes right back to the very, very beginning of the whole the whole two-volume set of Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So right away in 1st Corinthians, you know, uh, they are in love, like many Greeks were, with polished philosophical systems. And Paul has to say, look, that the center of the Christian message is not a polished image. We've got the idea of, of Christ, the Son of God, crushed and dead, bloody on a cross. That is foolishness. Uh, to the Greek philosophers, and it's mm -hmm. a stumbling block to the Jews. So you remember that back from 1 Corinthians 1. Mm -hmm. So I think he is against the whole philosophical system of Greece, 
in which you've got this high-sounding philosophical arguments with a very polished rhetorical presentation, but behind it is not the truth of God. So what he's saying is, look, I'm not going to, um, I'm not a polished rhetorical speaker. I'm not going to follow the rules of the preamble and the flattering address to the audience and then the use of certain techniques. I don't do any of that. Mm. I get up there and with fear and trembling, I preach Christ and him crucified. That's Mm. what I do. But when I'm done, there are people that are saved and that for all eternity. So I do I do have knowledge and I can give you the knowledge of true doctrine, but I don't have that rhetorical, philosophical polish that these guys do. So we've been talking in these first six verses really about Paul's zeal for the purity of the Corinthian church. But he turns now in verse 7 through the end of what we'll look at today, verse 15, to really start to zero in on his his accusation of these super apostles, mm-hmm. even going so far as to call them servants of Satan, essentially. Why does Paul talk so much in verses 7 through 12 about the issue of financial support? Mm -hmm. And what does it tell us about the false teachers that he was opposing? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he is positioning himself differently than them. And ironically, what's different is, it seems, he didn't charge the Corinthians anything for the preaching, and the super apostles did, Mm -hmm. I think. How else could they be different? And so it seems And later when he says that these individuals come in, push themselves forward and slap them in the face, mm. I think they're, they're plundering them. I think they're in it for the money. Wow. And so the Corinthians were paying for the privilege of having false doctrine taught to them. Um, so I think putting it together then, the way the super apostles could come at it is like, look, you get what you pay for. I mean, we are at a higher level. This guy's a, a rag, ragamuffin peddler of weird ideas. Look at him. I mean, mm-hmm. look at him. He's he's bruised and bloodied and ugly and in prison a lot, and he's a loser. Mm-hmm. We, and if and they're prosperity gospel types, we are winners, and yeah, you get what you pay for. So it's very reasonable for us uh, to charge you for what we're teaching, mm-hmm. um, but um, uh, this man, like I said, you get what you pay for. So he's a loser and his message is, is is worthless. Paul then has to address why he didn't charge them. And he uses very strong language here. First of all, he asks, is it a sin that I didn't charge you? I lowered myself um, and I did it to elevate you. I, I did it so that I could make it easier for you because I wanted to make it clear that we weren't in it for the money. Yeah. Hint, hint. Could it be the super apostles are in it for the money? But we were just trying to help you to not put a stumbling block in anyone's way so that we could, and and he said this in Acts 20 to the Ephesian church as well, you know, you can testify that we didn't take anything from you. I worked night and day so that these own hands of mine supplied my needs and those of my companions. And we did this to make it easier to preach, to plant the gospel. Now, make it clear that the worker deserves his keep. And so when we're done and we're gone, others are going to come along and you will and should pay them. But I get the feeling the super apostles overcharged for their services. Mm-hmm. I think they were plundering yeah. the Corinthians. So yeah. he's saying, look, I want you to know where the money came from. I robbed other churches. That's an interesting <laughs> phrase. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> Let's circle back to that part, I would Paul. Think what that you would say? be unethical, yeah. I mean, you think about some of the sins that disqualify people from ministry, you know, frequently sexual sins, mm-hmm. but sometimes if it's not sexual, it could be money related. There's some embezzlement going on. You know, he's got he's got the hand in the till like Judas Iscariot. Judas is, you know, helping himself to the money bag. Um, that's not what's going on here at all. Paul's saying, look, and he didn't rob anybody, uh, but the Macedonian churches, the other churches, um, 
just supported me, just like faith-based missionaries do today or parachurch ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, Crew, you know, um, InterVarsity, others. Uh, those individuals raise support and their work is excellent work and other Christians believe in it and say, look, we're going we're gonna to support you so yeah. that you can focus on the work. So Paul says, yeah, I, um, I got the money from other churches, <laughs> but you know, at some point you guys are going to need to pony up and right. you don't have to do it for me, but you're going to have to do it for the ones that are there. So honestly, I did it so I wouldn't be a burden to you, but I want you to know the money came from other churches. That's what happened. Yeah. He expands on that right in verse nine and, and basically says that very thing, right? This was so that I wouldn't burden you. Yeah. Uh, came, brothers that came from Macedonia supplied my need. Uh, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Just a, a unique statement there. And I think shows Paul's heart in ministry. He wants yeah. to proclaim to them the gospel. He's not in it for the money. He's sure. in this to proclaim the good news. Uh, as we think about even applying this, maybe just briefly in our own lives, what can we learn from this about the way we should support missionaries in church planting endeavors so that they can preach the gospel free of charge? Why is that a benefit even today as we think about ministries? Well, the full treatment of this is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So I would just commend all of the listeners to go over to that chapter where Paul makes it very plain. You don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain and who serves as a soldier at his own expense and all of those arguments he makes. And he says, look, you should be paying for ministry. Um, and it's it's reasonable to expect to be paying for ministry. However, Paul says that he he has this boast that he says no one in Achaia, no one in the in all these regions is going to stop this boasting of mine, hmm. um, because I want you to realize what I was doing. I was trying to remove any possibility that you would think that I was here to plunder you or I was doing it for the money. Um, actually, preaching the gospel of Christ has caused me immeasurable earthly suffering. Hmm. And you'll get to that later in this chapter. It has not been for the money. It has not been for power or privilege or honor. None of the above. Uh, we are like men condemned to die at the end of a procession, condemned to die in the arena. We are not looking like winners. But we want you to understand, and I'm doing this, he says, to cut the ground from under those who are trying to compare themselves to us. Yeah. The ground must be, I think logically, the only way you can put it together is they were charging for their ministry and charging a lot. And so he wants to make it plain, uh, the difference between the two ministries, that fundamentally we were doing it so that we would remove any concern that we were in it for the money. But they, they really are. Mm -hmm. They're in it for the money. So verses 7 through 12 is really Paul uh, setting himself in stark uh, contrast yeah. to these super apostles, these false teachers, because he wants them to know he loves them, yeah. and he's doing this for the sake of the gospel. Right. And those false teachers are, in comparison, trying to lead them astray and doing right. this really for their own benefit. Yeah, let me say something also about false teaching in general. Always be looking for this. Always be looking for some earthly benefit that the, that the teacher's mm -hmm. getting out of it. All right, um, because here's the thing, as Paul's about to say, they are servants of Satan. What does Satan have to offer? Does Satan have eternity to offer? Mm -hmm. No, Satan's going to hell mm -hmm. and he knows it. What sa Satan has to offer is what he offered to Jesus, the world. I can offer you the world. Mm -hmm. And so very, very frequently, if you see false teachers, there is some worldly benefit to their ministry for them. Um, <laughs> I remember a number of years ago in World Magazine um, reading an article 
about the private jets owned by some of these television preacher personalities, yeah. like Creflo Dollar and some of these other guys. And the name of the article was, What Would Jesus Fly? Uh, so it's <laughs> private jets. You know, these are $50 million oh, airplanes goodness. with just mm. an immense uh, price tag to just operate them with a crew and upkeep and all that. So yeah, let's, let's look at it. And even if it's not at that level, somewhere in the life of false teachers will be some earthly sensual benefit. Could be sexual. It could be there are women involved. Like some of these cult leaders were predators. They're predators. They're going after women. Mm. Um, it could be, you know, the big house. It could be the, the the car, all that stuff going on. So look for some worldly thing. Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. So mm -hmm. I think look for some worldly benefit. Conversely, you look at Paul, he's beaten up, he's in prison, he gets he's getting nothing out of it, but he loves to do it. What's going on there? Hope of heaven. It's a genuine ministry. What does Paul call his opponents then as we move into verse 13? And mm -hmm. why is this kind of open, powerful attack necessary here and not a matter of unkindness or slander? Yeah, they're not super apostles. They're false apostles. Let's just mm. let's just get get the right adjective in there. There's nothing super about them. They are servants of Satan. Mm. It's just overt. He he o openly says that they are servants of Satan in verse 14. It, if it should not surprise verse 15, it should not surprise us then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. So they're false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. He calls them the workman image. In my mind, at least, goes back to First Corinthians three, where he says, you know, as an expert craftsman, I laid a foundation, and now others are building on it. They better be careful how they mm -hmm. build. That's that gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw thing. They're they're building with straw. It's false. It's, it's false work. And so they are deceitful workmen. In other words, they're lying about what they're doing. And then this masquerading, they're masquerading as apostles of Christ. It's like, we really are serving Christ. We're super apostles of Christ. Yeah, but you're not. And, and fundamentally, you are false, false apostles. So mm -hmm. why is it necessary? It, this is dangerous. There is no greater attack on the church worldwide than false doctrine. As a matter of fact, you think about the three great attacks on Christians and on local churches. The three great attacks are persecution, worldliness, and false doctrine. Everywhere in the world, these three are working, but not generally all three together. Generally, worldliness and persecution are mutually exclusive. Either the world is slapping you around and beating you up, or the world's patting you on the back and giving you a crown. Mm. Um, but in all places, even in the persecuted places, false doctrine is working. Mm. And so it is the most deadly attack there is on the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says very plainly in Galatians, if, if someone is preaching to you a gospel or a Jesus other than what we preach, let him be eternally condemned. That gospel is no gospel at all. It cannot save souls. Now, if the true gospel is being preached from false motives, like in Philippians, Paul's like, whatever, feel sorry for them, but I'm fine with it because Christ is being preached. Yeah. And so he was fine with the gospel pre being preached for bad motives and bad reasons to stir up trouble for him while he was in chains, Philippians 1. He's fine with that, although not ultimately, it'd be better for them not to do it, but he's fine with it. In Galatians, not fine with it at mm. all. And here he is not fine that it is a false message. It seems he uses this disguising and masquerading language to to strengthen the the comparison here mm -hmm. to Satan when he says that Satan disguises himself or masquerades as an angel of light. Right. How is it that Satan does that? What's the what is Paul talking about here? Well, Satan's deceptive. He is a dragon. He is an ancient serpent. 
So read Revelation 12, 9. He is these things, but he looks beautiful. Hmm. So I think, keep in mind, if, if uh, Ezekiel 28, the, the king of Tyre passage, is in fact talking about Satan, Satan was corrupted on account of his own beauty. So I could imagine that Satan might be the most beautiful spiritual being God ever created. Hmm. Very attractive, very appealing, but truly a dragon, you know, truly a serpent. And so it looks good on the outside. It looks appealing. And then you think about Eden, which is mentioned here, how Satan deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. When she saw that the fruit was beautiful, the tree, everything was attractive, it was, it was alluring, it was enticing. So he masquerades as an angel of light. Mm. So, Yeah, verse 15, Paul makes the comparison plain. He says, so it's no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Mm -hmm. So it would be no surprise sure. that if these false apostles are serving Satan, that they would act as he acts. Yeah. Uh, and the final statement that he makes in the verses we're looking at today is that mm -hmm. their end will correspond to their deeds. What yeah. does Paul mean by this final statement? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage? Yeah, well, I want to say one more thing about masquerading as servants of righteousness. If you look at, for example, Mormonism, those people are very moral. I mean, they have good families, they're clean, squeaky clean image. You know, mm. I, I think very much of the outward appearance of attractive righteousness, but the inner heart corruption of a theology was crafted by a deceitful workman, Joseph Smith, in mm. the mid-19th century and has no foundation in biblical truth. So you've got Mormonism that looks really, really beautiful and attractive, and the and the families are all, you know, squeaky clean and, and this moral image, mm. but behind it, so it's masquerading as servants of righteousness. Islam, which may really could be argued is the oldest pseudo-Christian uh, heresy because uh, it, it's post-Christian, kind of says good things about Jesus, and but it's works, works righteousness. Again, there is a moral pattern of almsgiving and prayer and morality, but again, it, it looks righteous, but it really isn't. And so Satan's servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. And so when he says their end will be what their actions deserve— um, it's just Romans chapter two, God will give to each person according to what he has done. There's going to be judgment for these. Second Peter says it very, very plainly, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Mm -hmm. uh, terrible judgments come on people who mislead others, willfully mislead them with false doctrine. So it's a terrifying warning against false doctrine. So the overall message in second Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses one through 15 for us in this day is beware of false doctrine. Make certain that the elders in your church are sharp doctrinally, doctrinally that the filter is in place, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, that they are sound in doctrine, they're advanced in doctrine, they're able to discern the difference between a surface painting of righteousness but an inner heart corruption or the genuine article through and through. You need leaders who will be able to discern it. It is, care, it is important that they be careful workmen in scripture and in mm -hmm. theology, and all of us need to be on guard constantly concerning the danger of false doctrine. Well, this has been episode 12 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 13 entitled Paul's Staggering Credentials of Suffering, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. 
Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.